I'm Ebony K. Williams, attorney and host. Welcome to Holding Court, where we analyze the latest legal headlines that everybody's already talking about. But we dig deep into how the courts impact the culture. We break it all down, going straight from gavel to your newsfeed. And every week, we keep it 100. Right, Dustin? That's right, E. Let's hold court. All right, what's up, y'all jurors? It's your girl, Auntie E, here. And I'm in here today solo uh, for a few reasons. Number one, Auntie E uh, had to come in here on her day off because when you have a platform of this magnitude and you don't maximize it in a moment like this one, well, frankly, what the fuck are you even doing, right? So I was in Europe last week when the United States Supreme Court decided that affirmative action as we know it in this country and have known it for the last 40 plus years is dead. And I immediately uh, got on my device and I reached out to my fantastic uh, senior producer on the show, Miss Ashley Hobbs, and said, sis, I got to get in the studio upon uh, my return immediately. And she made that happen. So I'm in here for that reason today. I didn't even bother the great Dustin Ross with this only because, you know, Dustin needs his beauty sleep. And I want to make sure that he's fully rested <laughs> for uh, the rest of the docket that we have for y'all this season. Nah, but the reality is, is, is I'm about to just be on one for the next part of this episode. And I really didn't even want to waste Dustin's time by coming in here to listen to me uh, really just go the fuck off because that's what, what I'm about to do. So as I said, y'all, I was in Italy for a dear friend's wedding and I'm in Italy and my phone starts just blowing up, like ringing off the hook and texts and memes and all this shit. Everybody and their mama. Oh my God, E, Eb, Judge, Will- Judge Williams, Judge Ebony. Because y'all know, that's coming. Oh my God, look at what the Supreme Court has fucked around and done. Can you believe it? Ebony, what do you think? How do you feel? What do you make of it? Let me tell y'all what I know about this decision. And if you've been under a rock and you don't know what decision I'm talking about, let me just give you about three quick old facts because y'all should really know this at this point. Just last week, the United States Supreme Court decided that race-based considerations when it comes to college admissions in this country are no longer valid. Supreme Court declared that race can no longer be a factor in, quote, forcing institutions of higher learning and education to look at ways of achieving diversity. They're going to have to look elsewhere because they can no longer consider race. So many thoughts. Of course, how did this decision come down? Shockingly enough, it came down on a 6-3 conservative majority right along those ideological splits that we all knew would happen. That's what happens when Trump gets three Supreme Court picks. Don't get me started. The case involved, and it hit close to home for many reasons. Number one, I am a proud affirmative action baby, just like uh, the two black justices on the Supreme Court and the white women, too. Don't get me started. And it involved Harvard University. That was one of the defendants in the case. And the other defendant was my beloved alma mater. Y'all know I'm a proud Tar Heel. The University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which happens to be the nation's oldest public university. Chief Justice John Roberts, he says this in his uh, majority opinion. Chief Justice wrote for the majority on this case. And know that it means something, by the way, jurors. 
when a chief, when a justice, because it's not always the chief justice that writes the majority opinion or the dissenting opinion. So when a justice props their hand up, ooh, 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 me, 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 I want to write the opinion on this one. It's a tell. It means they're wanting to cement their legacy loudly, proudly, and boldly on this particular point of law. So here comes Chief Justice Roberts. He says that for too long, universities have concluded wrongly that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenged, challenges bested, rather, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. Our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. Well, I say this to Chief Justice Roberts. First of all, it is wholly ignorant and disingenuous, because I believe Chief Justice John Roberts to be many things, but dumb is not one of them. And so you know goddamn well that you cannot extricably disconnect someone's skills that have been built, someone's challenges that have been, to use your words, Chief Justice, bested, overcome, or the lessons that any of us have learned in this world as if they are not almost always inextricably linked in some way shape or form to our identities and how we show up in space on this very earth. And if you are a black American, if you are a Latino American, a Hispanic American, that shit matters. That is very much the fuel. That is very much the energy. That is very much often the very obstacle, the very challenge, sir, that we must best. That is often very much the bedrock of a skill set that we have to acquire to overcome the hypocrisy and the anti-blackness that we deal with on a daily basis, being black in America. So, so there's that. So Chief Justice Roberts, get the fuck out of here. Okay, now let's go to the newest Supreme Court Justice, Kentonji Brown Jackson, first and only black woman so far to serve on the United States Supreme Court. She said a lot of things. Y'all should read her full dissent. One of the things she says is that this is truly a tragedy for all of us, and I'm going to come back to all of us at the end of this episode. Because she's not just talking about black people. She's talking about all Americans. The justice goes on to say, with let them eat cake obliviousness. Today, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. But deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. And I've seen a lot of y'all uh brilliantly take that particular quote from uh, Justice Brown Jackson and, and put that on a meme because it hits, right? It hits when you know that the Supreme Court or your workplace policy or your university's policies, they can, they can proclaim a lot of things in aspiration, but they don't make it so in the lived experience, in the day-to-day. And that's what Supreme Court Justice Contangi Brown Jackson is saying there. So where do, how do we get here? Uh, just know that the notion of race conscious, and let me tell you why it's race conscious and not race based. And this is a very important distinction, y'all. Pay attention here. When we say words matter, this is what the fuck I'm talking about. A lot of people like to frame affirmative action in the following ways. Quota system. We ain't had a quota system with affirmative action in over 25, 30 years. Uh, We're going to get to the Supreme Court decision that eradicated quotas. Race-based, meaning this person was led into this higher learning institution because of, as if that race-based admission is the sole reason 
for this person matriculating at this particular higher learning institution. And also, let's be clear, the vast majority of American universities have never, ever, ever used race-based or race-conscious college admissions practices. No, 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 no. Most have already rejected that carte blanche outright. It is only the most elite universities, only the whitest universities in our nation that have ever even availed themselves to the possibility of creating campus diversity, racially, culturally, and otherwise, through the use of race-conscious college admissions. And what's the difference? I told you, race-based, you're black, you're in. You're Hispanic, you're in. You're Asian, you're in. That's what race-based is. You're white, you're in. Race-conscious admissions, which is what we're talking about in the case and what what has only been on the Supreme Court's consideration since 2003, when affirmative action was vastly changed, and the last time it was really visited, I'm going to get to that and, and Miss Sandra Day O'Connor in a minute. But we talk about race-conscious admissions. All you're talking about, jurors, is race being but one factor in a litany, a long-ass list of various considerations to holistically conclude whether or not a student candidate is ripe for success at that particular university. And whether or not that particular student has an overall record, overall record, okay? Which includes perhaps a a cultural diversity lens based on their blackness, based on them being of Latino or Hispanic heritage, Asian heritage, Caucasian white Eurocentric heritage, indigenous heritage. And also, do they have leadership skills from their high school experiences? Were they class president on the city council? Did they write for the yearbook? Were they football players, basketball players, field hockey players, lacrosse players, volleyball players? Did they cheer? Did they play the flute, the saxophone, the clarinet, the violin? Did they volunteer with Girl Scouts, Boys and Girls Club? Understand? Holistic. Oh, and let's not forget, you know what else is a part of that holistic evaluation? Even under race-based Raced conscious admissions? I don't know. How about they have a high GPA? I don't know. How about they have an exceedingly high standardized test score? ACT or SAT? Yeah, that part. So y'all don't think for one fucking second that black students that are benefactors of affirmative action, myself included, almost all of my black Carolina classmates included, don't think that we had no low-ass SATs. Don't think that we had no shitty GPAs. Don't even think that we had average GPAs or average SAT scores. No, all race conscious says is that of the students we are considering to enter this university, these particular students show the most promise. And if it's close, if we're looking at a black student and a white student and they both have 3.8 non-weighted GPAs and they both have 1250 SATs, 1300 SATs, we are inclined to select the black student with that record over the white student with that record because we feel there is value in mixing up the participation, the lens, the perspective, and the value offering of our overall student body, which because this is still America, ladies and gentlemen, is almost always disproportionately white. That is what race conscious admissions looks like. Now that we got that out the way. 
Let me go on to say this. How do I feel about this Supreme Court gutting affirmative action as we've known it for the last 40 plus years? In a word, I feel it's unconstitutional. There, I said it. Unconstitutional. And let me tell you why. In my esteemed legal analysis, I think it's the height of hypocrisy for the majority of this court and for John Roberts specifically to lean on an argument of unconstitutionality to justify this decision. Let me tell you why. Well, John Roberts, what he calls constitutional, I call unconstitutional, and we're talking about the same damn constitutional amendment. Y'all, we're talking about the 14th Amendment. We're talking about the Equal Protection Clause. We're talking about a clause that in the great irony of this is the very constitutional amendment that this majority court relies on in its ruling, and it's the exact same part of our founding document. Our fa- you know, that thing that every patriot, every far-right conservative, every bald eagle American flag-bearing person wants to boldly proclaim as the, as the guiding four-corner document for American life, that thing called the Constitution, that is the very document, that is the very amendment that makes this Supreme Court ruling both unconstitutional, illegal, and also immoral. Now, again, let's talk about the Equal Protection Clause. What's it from? Well, it's a part of something that was uh, packaged. Y'all know we like a package deal, right? The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were all established around the same time. They are known as the Reconstruction Amendments because they came when? Right around the Reconstruction era of American history. Right after the enslaved black descendants of Africans were so-called emancipated. So after 1865, you've got this era of about depending on who you ask, 10, maybe somewhere up to 20 years, 20 is a stretch maybe, 15, of tremendous black growth and experience. That is the era, y'all, where we had black governors. Yes, governors, multiple. We had black U.S. senators, many, many, many black congressmen. You had black institutions being founded. That's when a lot of the historically black colleges and universities, and don't worry, we're going to talk about HBCUs in a minute. But they were all mostly founded and funded and expanded during the Reconstruction era. So that, I'm just giving you some historical framework, y'all, of where the 14th Amendment comes from. That is the era in which that particular constitutional amendment that John Roberts relies on in his immoral and this court majority's unconstitutional, I say, decision to gut uh, affirmative action, he, he perverted the 14th Amendment. Yes, it is a perversion of the 14th Amendment that John Roberts and this majority court rely upon when they gut affirmative action, when they gut and they throw away and they disregard race-conscious college admissions. Because, you see, y'all, the 14th Amendment, we call it the Equal Protection Clause because, simply put, the 14th Amendment just says that all people, especially, wink, wink, these newly freed black folks that now per this amendment, they are citizens. That's what the 13th Amendment says. That's what the 14th Amendment says. And the 15th Amendment goes even further to give the legal voting rights to black men. That's how much of a drastic shift 
in the perception and the treatment of black folk and black men in particular became during this kind of golden renaissance era of black hope known as the Reconstruction era. So the 14th Amendment was all about saying equal protection under the law. That's what the amendment says in, in, in text. So thus, when you say the equal protection under the law, that means that the same rights, protections, and experiences and privileges afforded to the white citizens of this country that they've always had, the 14th Amendment says we are now going to expand those rights, those protections to these black people too. That is literally the reason we had a 14th Amendment to begin with. It was ratified in 1868 and it becomes this direct call to action. It becomes guidance, y'all, as to how America would deal with, treat, and handle this entirely newly established citizen class of black Americans. Okay, so I'm, I'm just breaking that down slowly so y'all really understand what the fuck the 14th Amendment is. I say, and many scholars, legal scholars agree with me, that the 14th Amendment is the single most paramount imperative constitutional clause, amendment, even framing in the entire fucking Constitution. Because it really says what's good for one is good for the other. That's what the 14th Amendment says. Okay. So now today's Supreme Court, they seem it a rejection of race as a college admissions consideration, even though the 14th Amendment dictates them not to. And when they do that, again, it's a perversion of the Constitution. It's a perversion of the amendment itself and the very spirit, y'all, of black liberation and social positioning that is the exact thing that the 14th Amendment was designed to enforce. So it is with great hypocrisy, again, I say, that John Roberts and this majority court rely on the 14th Amendment to deem race-based college admissions unconstitutional. Because really, y'all got it fucked up. It is the 14th Amendment that makes race-based college admissions. It is the 14th Amendment that makes race-conscious college admissions constitutional. It is actually a directive from the 14th Amendment that race be a consideration in the equality, the chance at least for equality, in college admissions in America. So, again, it's the hypocrisy if this court wants us to believe for one second, y'all, that this is about Asians and fairness. Because let's run it back. If you haven't followed this closely, then you might have missed the fact that white people actually scapegoated the shit out of uh, the Asian community in this process. See, wh the white Americans that felt a way, that continue to feel a way about black advancement in this nation, uh, they threw stones and then they hid their fucking hands. Because they said that this was not about white kids with bad grades or mediocre whiteness. No, 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 no. They wanted to lay the argument at the, at the feet of these extremely elite, extremely academically advanced Asian students who were complaining that they were not getting in to the Harvard, Yales, Carolinas, University of Michigan, Ann Arbors, and UVAs. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about a very small, very small group of Asians that were suffering those rejections. So affirmative action, again only allows race to be one of many considerations in this holistic application process. And the Supreme Court is saying that, well, that's not fair. It's not fair for race to be one of the considerations, which is really code for when the consideration affords an opportunity for black or Latino students, we have a problem. 
See, the court can't cherry pick, y'all, and pick and choose when the fuck it wants to be colorblind. And I'm saying colorblind because that is the language the court used in this decision. They're saying that it's time that we set race consideration admissions on the on the mantle and we we sit that down on a shelf and we abandon that approach to creating the best universities and college campuses in America because it's not fair. And if we want to be a nation that doesn't practice discrimination, we should stop practicing discrimination. And the way we do that is to stop giving consideration to black and brown students as they attend higher university. Now, listen, I'm not even about to sit up here and play with the court as they try to make fools of all of us. And that's what they're doing as they try and attempt to gaslight all of us. As if we don't know what they are really saying behind this extremely thin veil, if it's a veil at all, of so-called desire to end discrimination and enter a space of colorblindness, by the way, a space we have never, ever, ever occupied as a nation or really a world ever before. But okay, go off. They're throwing the stones and they're hiding their hands. And we have to name that shit for what it is. What this is, what this decision is, it is a sucker punch. It is a gut punch. And it is aimed at a very particular group. It's, it's aimed not actually at all black and brown students, which might surprise some of y'all. And I'm going to tell you why I say that in a second here. But it is aimed specifically at a slow rising but rising nonetheless segment of black middle and elite class in America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, how do I deduce this? Auntie E, what the fuck are you talking about? Let me tell you. You see, what the Supreme Court knows and what we all know, because we've all been anticipating this at some point for a while now, and Sandra Day O'Connor really about hit this shit on the head. I'm, I'm going to really prove something pretty miraculous uh, in terms of her foresight in a minute. But we all knew that the day would come, right, where affirmative action as we, we've known it, many of us have benefited from it. We knew that one day it would come to an end. And we knew that there would have to be a pivot in the way in which universities still tried to say and show that they value diversity on their campuses. That it is a quote, and this is the legal argument, it is a compelling interest of higher learning institutions to maintain a, a diverse quote, unquote, student body. I say quote, unquote, around diverse because diverse in what way, right? Diverse in race, diverse in religion, diverse in gender, diverse in sexual orientation, gender identity, diverse in socioeconomic. Okay, let's go to that. Let's go to socioeconomic, right? Because that's, as as universities, and I'm sure y'all have all started reading the think pieces, okay, well, the Supreme Court has tied our hands. Well, they, they tied one of your hands, which, John fucking Roberts, this motherfucker. He ties one hand behind the backs of universities and say you cannot use race-conscious considerations and admissions anymore. But Oh, but, but, but I'm going to leave this other hand just a little loose because if you read his opinion closely, y'all, there's all these exceptions. He says, but while you can't use race-conscious consideration, what you can do is consider a student applicant's essay that describes race as a part of their lived experience through either challenge and or celebration or otherwise. So we're going to get to that. But essentially, the court's tying colleges' hands behind their back when they say you can't use these race-considered admissions anymore, right? So universities like mine, UNC Chapel Hill, because I've had some of these conversations, 
Uh, and I'm continuing to have these conversations with leaders and board members at my university because if you think if you think Black Tar Heels taking this shit lying down, you got us fucked up because we're not. I doubt the black UVA student bodies taking it lying down or the black students at UMich or UT Austin or UCLA or UC Berkeley or Yale or Harvard or Dartmouth or Brown or Columbia. So those y'all, that's that's really all we're talking about here. And actually, let me take it back around UCLA and UC Berkeley, because their California state constitution prohibited them from using race considerations around college admissions. I want to say about 15 or 20 years ago. So what did they start doing to make sure that their colleges weren't all white and essentially all Asian even? They shift to this thing that many colleges are going to have to do now, socioeconomic based preferences or admission considerations, right? So we say, okay, well, we can't really name that we're considering your blackness, but what we can name and we can still legally consider as to whether or not we admit you to this university or not is whether or not you're poor. Do you come from poverty? Do you have a single parent? Are you poor little black person, little, little Hispanic, little Latino that may or may not even be here legally? Are you poor? Because if you're poor, then we will do the right thing by you. And we will consider your poorness as a part of your permission to have an opportunity for mobile expansion and growth in this nation we call America. So that you too can live the American dream. So that you can ascend to a university like so many of us have done, like I, Auntie E, Ebony K. Williams, Esquire has done being the very proud first-generation college four-year graduate in my family, being able to go on at the young age that I did to graduate from Loyola University College of Law and start practicing law, taking and passing a bar, and practicing in a, an American courtroom at the age of 23. And I can tell y'all, y'all, y'all know my story. That changed everything for me. Because I don't give a fuck what people are talking about on social media and in the streets. Oh, it doesn't matter what college you go to. Oh, you'll be fine. You know, da, da. Fuck all that. I'm here to tell you, coming out of certain prestigious institutions of learning, colleges and universities, it does matter. Let me tell you why it matters. It matters because we have strong alumni, university and connections. We have strong tentacles all across the nation and the world that when you walk into a room, and you say you are a graduate of Harvard, it means something. UNC Chapel Hill, you goddamn right, it means something. Now, that doesn't mean that if you come from an institution outside of that small elite bubble, you're not going to succeed. Of course, we see it every day. But don't be fooled, y'all. Like, that shit don't matter. Let me prove it to you. Ask me where eight of the nine justices that made this very life-changing, groundbreaking decision went. Eight out of the nine of them went to an Ivy League school, not a public, an Ivy League school for either undergraduate law school or both. And that ninth one, they went to one of the other elite schools I just named. The Vanderbilt, the Notre Dame, you name it. So now that we've named it, this is really a workaround that will allow the poorest of poor black kids to still get some kind of consideration. So if you're black and poor, you might still have a little bit of chance in the consideration. But if you're black and middle class, if you're black and have the audacity to, oh, I don't know, 
be on the ascending end of the social American order, this court intends you to be fucked. They intend to punish you and your parents and your grandparents and all the blacks just like you who had the audacity to avail themselves to this very educational opportunity benefit some 40 years ago. Oh, yes, please believe. Let's, let's talk about my alma mater, UNC Chapel Hill. So you might be asking, like, when were the first black students even allowed at UNC Chapel Hill, a school like that, one of the schools named in this lawsuit? Well, we know that Brown versus Board of Education, which was decided in 1954, is the precedent in which this even happens, that we integrate schools. At UNC, just know this, as recently as 1960, we had four black freshmen, four, four, at a school that had thousands. Today, UNC has somewhere, I don't know, between 30 and 40,000 students matriculating on campus. That goes to show you how minuscule of a population we were, and relatively speaking, still are. But let's go to uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor. And keep in mind, y'all, Justice Sonia Sotomayor is a proud native of the Bronx. Shout out to BX. And she also is often referred to herself as the perfect affirmative action baby, never shying from the fact that she knows that her ascension to the highest institutions of American learning, in her case, it just so happens to be Yale Law and Princeton undergraduate, is due to affirmative action. Just like Clarence Thomas's ass is up there because of affirmative action. Oh, and I'm about to get to Clarence in a minute. But in her defiant dissent, Justice Sotomayor says this. The devastating impact of this decision cannot be overstated. Notwithstanding this court's action, however, society's progress toward equality cannot be permanently halted. You better say that shit. Diversity is now a fundamental American value housed in our varied and multicultural American community that only continues to grow. The pursuit of racial diversity will go on. And she's goddamn right. What she's saying, y'all, is the toothpaste will not go back into the tube. Try as it might, they didn't already fucked up, right? This notion of prevailing white mediocrity and holding it so tender and fragile as it is will never be fully restored because the court, thank God, and American society at large, thank God, has already asserted and articulated that there is indeed an American value that reflects and respects racial and cultural diversity. See, you've already said it. So now you can't unsay it simply because now you feel a way because too many blacks and too many Latinos have already started to progress and quote, take up your spaces. See, it's, it's a little late for that now, right? Now, she's right. Diversity will go on. But as she's saying, she and, and many of us, I, many of my classmates at UNC, but not all, we also will be able to bypass this court's horrendous unconstitutional decision because the other ways in which universities will now try to ensure diversity will be based on the money. 
It'll be based on the socioeconomics. It will be based off how close you live to the American poverty line. And let me say for the record, I'm glad about it. I am glad that if you are black in this nation, you are Latino, Hispanic of descent in this nation, and you are also poor, you goddamn right. You should have the highest level of consideration when it comes to ascending to a higher level of institutional learning. But I want to also say this, and this is the part that many people are not necessarily saying out loud, but I'm going to say it. We are now living in a generation, y'all, where some of this work has been done for us. We are now living in a generation where some of these, some of us, not necessarily my story, but I had classmates that didn't come from poverty. What, what it could be argued, y'all, is that if you're first generation and you're coming from poverty, we can live with it. But oh, don't y'all get too uppity. Oh, don't y'all get too out of your fucking place. Don't you dare for one second believe that we are going to allow as a Supreme Court in a, in a, in a largely white-centric society, that we're going to allow you to actually build upon this little bit of inch that we've permitted you. We gave you an inch of access to education at the highest levels of learning in America, and now you want to take a mile? Now you want to have the audacity to let your children, who did not come into wor the world impoverished as you, also have access to that same level of elite education? Oh, hell no. And listen, who are we kidding? We, we know that white folks have been comfortable with the perpetual asterisk that always accompanies them and their high position in society. They okay with the asterisk. We know that because they've had the asterisk since they stole this land from the indigenous siblings. So they don't feel no kind of way about saying that. They don't feel no kind of way about saying enough is enough with this diversity bullshit. Y'all are taking it too far. We now have to go back and try to be colorblind starting in 2023. Some shit we ain't never been since the founding of this nation. Since 1776, we weren't colorblind. In 1865, we weren't colorblind. In 1954, when Brown was decided, we weren't colorblind. In, in uh, what, 19, two, 2003, rather, we weren't colorblind. I'm going to get to that. That was the really first real challenge the court had to affirmative action in which the court upheld affirmative action thanks primarily to the single vote of then, well, the, only, the first woman on the Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor, a Republican appoint, appointee, might I add. We weren't colorblind then because Sandra Day O'Connor said, nah, we still need this shit. <laughs> because what we know is that without race considerations in admissions, she knew, the whole court then knew, America knew, as, as recent as 2003, y'all, that we would be a white-ass, non-diverse society without this mandate. So she goes on to say, and this is the 2003 decision called Grutter v. Bollinger. And Sandra Day O'Connor says that right now we still need it. Sad as it is to say in 2003, America still needs basically a forced hand to encourage the broad participation of all the races at our elite learning facilities because A, we as Americans believe there is a compelling interest in racially diverse student learning. We believe that all the students are made better when they can participate in the interconnectivity of learning from each other's lived experiences 
and lives. The court says that that's a legitimate interest, thus is constitutional. <laughs> but if you read the decision in Sandra Day O'Connor's voice and in her words, she also says, but I, I would like to think that in about 25 years, we'll be done with this. In about, I'm going to give America, this is Sandra Day Connor talking, I'm going to give America about 25 years to, to really get this shit right when it comes to race in America so that we will no longer need this type of policy. She essentially predicts a, a, a funeral of sorts for affirmative action 25 years post the 2003 Bollinger decision. Y'all, she wasn't far off at all. Now, She's wrong about the fact that we absolutely still need the shit. We've done relatively no real progress on this issue of race and discrimination and default presumptions of white superiority and default presumptions of black inferiority. And especially when it comes to academic standards and intelligence and all those things that we know and have data points around. But she's right about the timing. The American society really only tolerated Affirmative action for a, a little less than 20 more years. She, she overshot it by, by five years. It's been exactly 20 years since that 2003 Bollinger decision. Here we are in 2023, and the shit is struck down. And it's important to note, y'all, that this is not just some radical far-right court coming to this conclusion. Although far-right court they are, and radical they are. When polled, most Americans... No longer support race-considered college admissions by way of affirmative action. And that includes some black people. So that's a good time to talk about Clarence Thomas. Oh, let's talk about Clarence's ass. Let's talk about the fact that the court is saying that after allowing and permitting affirmative action for the better part of 40 years, we black folks got a little too beside ourselves. We got a little too comfortable and this affirmative action thing went a little too far. We got carried away with it. The court is saying, look, let me prove to you we don't need this shit no more. One of y'all black asses became the United States president. Two of y'all black asses actually became Supreme Court justices. And that includes you, Clarence Thomas. But let's talk about Clarence Thomas. Because you know, he's special. As y'all know, Clarence Thomas has long been on a campaign, a very aggressive, one could even call it a war path and not overstated, against affirmative action. Since way before he was on the bench, if you really know anything about the man. In fact, he got into the good graces of the Republican Party, the grand old party, the GOP, starting as early as really the Reagan years were when he really, really started to try to, you know, tap dance his way onto the high court. And he did so by talking about the fact that, A, his sister was on welfare and he was so disgusted with her dependence on American government's check, which played right into the Reagan welfare queen narrative. But then he goes on to say how much he hates affirmative action because it puts a, 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 an asterisk, here's that word again, beside his Yale law degree. And it was an asterisk that made it impossible for when Clarence Thomas graduated from Yale Law. And he admits he knows damn well he was the benefactor of affirmative action, just like most all black Ivy League ascensions at that time and this one. And it's not, by the way, let me just pause. Y'all, when I say that, that is not because we were not qualified. See, here's the problem. This is where, where I get really pissed. 
Because when we say we're affirmative action babies, when Sonia Sotomayor says I was the perfect affirmative action baby, when I, Ebony K. Williams, say I am a proud affirmative action graduate, baby, student, benefactor, Clarence Thomas, your ass, Obama says it. He knows goddamn well his black ass would have never been at Harvard or Harvard Law but for affirmative action. What we are not saying, well, certainly what I'm not saying, is that we were not academically qualified to be there. What we are saying is that what we know about our nation and our history and our current condition is not an asterisk beside our degrees or our status. It's the asterisk beside the institution that says, but for a policy that essentially requires you to take a second look at this particular black applicant, this particular Puerto Rican applicant, because we know the data shows us that conscious or subconscious, the knee jerk reaction is to dismiss, disqualify and shut out applicants like this from your institution. So let's talk about Clarence Thomas and let's let's kind of frame for a second where this particular black man who ultimately goes on. And I mean, you have to laugh to keep from crying. He goes on to become the the legacy of Thurgood Marshall on the United States Supreme Court. Clarence Thomas becomes but the second black man ever in American history. And he still is the second black man in American history to ever serve on the highest court of the land. So Clarence Thomas was born in a small, poor, 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 poor ass town in the Savannah, Georgia area. And he's, you should just do some reading about him. He had a really shitty childhood. By he, he was abandoned by his mother. She had some problems. He was abused by his grandfather, he and his brother. But ultimately, um, let, me, let me give you a quote from his autobiography to just kind of let you know what this young man, at the time, this young black man's mindset was about himself and his relationship to other black people. In, in his autobiography entitled My Grandfather's Son, a Memoir, Clarence Thomas says this, quote, Most of the insults aimed at me had to do with the darkness of my skin, the flatness of my nose, the kinkiness of my hair, and that I talked a certain way. And such Racial slurs stung all the more from having come from my own people. So y'all, there you have it. We see the foundation. We see the prism from which this particular dark-skinned, kinky-haired black boy sees himself through the disgust of his own people. So you know what happens? His, quote, own people, us, black folk, we become his enemy number one. And see, herein lies, y'all, and this is not to, to, to sing a sad song for Clarence Thomas or in any way uh, give pass or permission to his wholly grotesque and self-hating and devastating behavior on this court for the last two generations. But it is to show y'all what can happen, the deep cautionary tale and the price that we all as black Americans pay for the dynamics that we maintain. And we do maintain them. The colorism, the so-called class distinctions, the, the, the categories in which we come up with within our own community and culture as African descendants, because some of us are so intoxicated, so seduced by the mythology of white proximity 
getting us somewhere. I'll talk about that a little bit in Bet on Black. The good news about being black in America today. I need Dustin for that part, that, that good news. Anyway, I tend to think there are three types of black elites. Number one type. This is the happy to be there black elite. This is the black person that somehow, some way, they done fucked around and found themselves in a great position, a, 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 a position that is out of social order, because social order says that black folks are always supposed to be in the back, the last, at the bottom. So if you are a black elite that somehow finds yourself elevated above that status, that assigned social American positioning, you are indeed black elite by virtue of that status, and you're happy to be there. You're not going to rock the boat. You're not going to say shit. You're not going to do shit. You, you went in the room and you, mama said, don't touch something, don't say nothing, and you don't touch nothing, and you don't say nothing. You become a passive participant in your temporary positioning. And I say temporary on purpose. Number two, this is the black elite that is actively and aggressively engaging in the work to expand access to the highest, most upper echelon of American life. These are the black elites that work to make sure that there are other black uh, individuals that can come alongside them and behind them. I said alongside and behind because you don't have to wait till you old and, and, and in the back end of life to help somebody. But they do that work to help other blacks have access to academia, professional spaces, and social access. They are the black elites that know that they have to leverage their privilege in order to advance the positioning of their fellow black person. This type of black elite knows that this work is not optional. They know that it is a requirement. They see other highly positioned, other ascending, growing positioned black Americans, not as competition, but they see them for what they are, their protection. They know that the more and more and more other black folk that ascend to these spaces and uh, alongside them or watch this higher than them above them. They know that those fellow black people can create a, 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 a safety bubble of protection so that they are not out there on an isolated island all by themselves. And when the shit hits the fan, their black asses will be the first ones out the door. So they understand the, the self-importance and the selfless significance of expanding blacks in those spaces. This is the second type. Oh, and then there's the third type. Y'all, this is the Clarence Thomas type. And I have to tell you that I encountered a great many of these types during my years at my beloved alma mater, UNC Chapel Hill. They were typically the second generations of former black either Tar Heels or other black college graduates. They were the ones that thought students like myself, first generation, from a single mom, from some level of poverty, well, they thought that we didn't deserve to be there. They thought that we were out of our place, and they thought that black Carolina or black Harvard or black Princeton or black UVA should be the exclusionary space for those that were already granted a birthright to higher black currency. This is the black that happens upon elitism by their birthright. And now they work overtime to pull up that very ladder that their parents likely, or maybe them even, ascended up as quickly as possible. 
These particular black elites, y'all see, they are desperate to be the only blacks in this highest sector of American life. They need to be the only ones. <laughs> and it makes them sick to their fucking stomachs. It actually kills them when they see other black folks ascending beside or even behind them. They get scared. They get angry. They hate these other black folks that they don't feel were anointed or born into it. These particular black elites are the very reason that so many black folks in general can't stand no black ass upper class American. And I understand why. Now, see, the essential difference between those three stratas of black elites, but it, particularly the last two, the ones that work overtime to increase access and the Clarence Thomas types that rip that ladder of ascension up so fucking fast they get whiplash. The difference between those two types is the difference between the, the mindset of abundance and scarcity. You see, when you are convinced that there's only but this small, tiny space, this infinite amount of capacity and opportunity for your success and living good, as they say, then you act like Clarence Thomas. Then you act like some of my UNC classmates. I don't have to name you. You know who you are. You act like a lot of those classmates' parents, real trifling, and you run as fast as your little legs can carry you to, to pull up that ladder and slam the fucking door shut on opportunity and access so that you can be the only ones. Scarcity. You will not create the space for more of us because you perceive other black people ascending or occupying your same space as a threat. You see them as a mirror of your own ordinariness. And then you don't get to be so fucking special anymore. It's amazing. Y'all, I've watched this since I was 16 years old. It's fascinating. All right, now that version of black elitism, again, is rooted in the same disease as white supremacy. Those blacks are scared to compete. They're insecure, just like the white folks that are. They are entirely dependent on this so-called intrinsic value of a non-merit-based quality. In the case of those particular black elites, it might be pedigree. When we're talking about white folks, we're talking about their, their sense of entitlement because of their whiteness. And it's a whiteness that America has since the dawn of its birthday said is intrinsically highest valued, period. But those of us that subscribe to an abundance mindset, well, see, y'all, we move different, right? We see things in the same way that the original black Supreme Court justice, yes, I'm talking about Brother Thurgood Marshall, the way he saw them. We see things in the way that our most recent heroine on the court, Justice Kentanji Brown Jackson, sees them. We see things, y'all, in the way that they actually are. We see things in abundance. See, my, my, my mother raised me to believe that we serve an abundant God. This is where this comes from. This is not random. This is not pie in the sky. This is not wishful or hopeful thinking. Y'all, this is my faith talking. I serve a God of plenty, of more and always. So when you believe in abundance, you know that there can never be too many of us anywhere. And see, the sickening part of what the court does uh, and, and even what she does, 
does and doesn't probably mean to do. I'm talking about uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor when they talk about, well, we'll we'll still get to diversity. We'll just kind of root it in the socioeconomics and we'll make it poverty based instead of black based or brown based. Now they're conflating blackness with poverty. And I don't like that shit because said another way, this is this is the narrative. See, if, if, if we stay in our place, right, and you stay at the very bottom of every measurable aspect of society, you, you stay the least homeowning, you stay the least wealth generating, you stay the least educated, you stay the least business owning, well, then the court is happy to help you. <laughs> Policies are happy to help you. But see, when you don't do that, when you don't, Stay in your place as a poor, bottom level, bottom tier, subordinate, subordinate Negro. Well, now we got to call it the same act unconstitutional. Ain't that a bitch? Now let's talk about HBCUs for a second. Because I know many people, when this uh, decision came down, said, well, you know, It sucks, but let's not overreact because we can just go home, right? We can just go where we've always been welcomed, where we will always have the power, which, of course, are our beloved and necessary and ever more important historically black colleges and universities. Yes, yes, and yes. HBCUs have always been a bastion, a bedrock, a safe haven, and frankly, a platform of elevation For black Americans, we know HBCUs graduate more physicians, more attorneys, more uh, engineers. We've always seen the value of HBCUs. That's why my sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, for the past many years, we raised over a million dollars for HBCUs in one day. So, yes, y'all, that's a thing. It will continue. It will always be a thing. And yet... That doesn't make what this court has done any less unconstitutional. And we've got to name it and hold them still accountable for its unconstitutionality, for its innate anti-blackness. And listen, Douglas has already told us this, right? Douglas, Frederick Douglas, I'm talking about, has already said that power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. So I know many of you are asking, well, you're talking real Real big, Ed, but what do we do? The court is ruled. What can be done? Well, a couple things. Black America, we've got to consider what our demand is. So I've got two suggestions. Number one, expand the court. Expand the court. I'm not playing. That's not hyperbole. That's not a little talking fucking point. It's a real possibility. It's been done before, and y'all, we need to do it again. Second, fuck this filibuster. Get rid of it and let the Senate, and especially we've got a 2024 election coming up, if we deliver a United States House of Representatives and a United States Senate along with a president that have proven that they will prioritize the needs and the demands of black America, that's how you get shit done. Now, how do we do it? Listen, um... I don't know that in this climate you can run openly on the two things I just suggested, but I know that you can have them in your wheelhouse and you, and I know that you can have them in your back pocket as the things that you will implement per your arrival in the houses of power. 
Now, again, for this to happen, Democrats, and again, please don't don't spend a lot of time talking about a love affair with the Democratic Party because this ain't about that. The Democrats are flawed and imperfect as fuck, and we all know that. And yet we've also seen the devastating consequence of a Trump presidency that if he didn't do shit else, he gave us three young ass Supreme Court justices that sole mission is to devastate, disregard and disintegrate black American life. Oh, and and queer life, too. And probably the lives of, of women that care what to do with their own bodies. So I'm a single issue voter for those that don't know. I don't really give a fuck about too much else, but what's going on with this Supreme Court. So as long as I feel like I'm going to like your picks for the United States Supreme Court, you've got my vote. I don't give a fuck what anybody thinks about it either. That's me. Now, this has to move quickly because even if, let's say it's Biden, when Biden runs and potentially wins another term, he's got to move quickly, y'all. He's got to If he gets a Senate majority and he gets a House majority, he'll only have it for two years because we know from political trends that after the midterms of almost any sitting president, one, if not both of those houses of legislative power flip uh, towards his uh, political opponent. That's just what happens. So you got two years, Biden. You have two years before you essentially become lame duck and won't be able to do shit that matters. So in those two years... You should work overtime to make sure that everybody and every vote extends the court, expands the court, that we go from nine justices to 13 justices, as has been done in the past. We didn't used to have nine justices, y'all. We used to have six Supreme Court justices. So nine's not some magic fucking number. It's arbitrary. Just like we used to have nine appellate circuits. You know, you know how many we have now? Huh, 13. So one could legitimately argue that if we raise the number of Supreme Court justices to 13 justices, it would actually be more lockstep, more fair, watch this, more just to reflect the 13 different appellate circuits. Yeah, because I'm not willing to wait for 20, 40, 60 more years for Neil Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett, and Brett Kavanaugh to die off before we have an opportunity to right a historic generational wrong. I'm not willing to do it. So let's talk about why now, right? I'm going to close with this. Why? Why, Auntie E, after 40 years of improvement, I mean, it was slow moving and we were still having a lot of shit to fight for, but some things were going right, right? There was progress, particularly on this, this education, higher learning issue, And for those that want to act again like college doesn't matter, look at the numbers. I'm not going to argue with you. The numbers say, and yes, college debt is outrageous. I have all kinds of ideas and suggestions, and and I've put it out there. Think about uh, community college for two years and then transfer to your UNC or your UVA or whatever school you want to go to. Hell, uh, Obama didn't start at Harvard undergrad. Did you know that? Some of y'all didn't know that. Obama started at a small college uh, out near Pasadena, Occidental. And he's a motherfucking transfer student. Yes, Barack Hussein Obama, the 44th president of the United States of America, transfer student. Think about it. So anyways, college matters. 
Having a four-year degree still matters. It's not the only way. Check out the skills, skills, skills episode of Holding Court. But the college degree always is an additive, always. Now, don't overpay for it, but that's on you. So again, Auntie E, why now? Why does our nation decide enough is enough for these Negroes and Hispanics and Latinos and, and it's time to stop all this shit and let's go all the way to trying to pretend we're colorblind? Why now? Well, I'm going to tell you why. It's because we are looking at the last 20 years, the 20 years in front of us, y'all, this will be the last 20 years where white people will be the dominant population in America. Now, I know we've been talking, whispering around this for, you know, a while, but I think y'all need to really understand the power of a population majority. A population majority, y'all, is the definition of power. This country, America, you know, some of y'all just celebrated the 4th of July, so-called Independence Day. It's a celebration of the 1776 founding of this nation. And when this nation was founded, we need to just be clear and honest, it was built as a safe haven for white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, period, full stop. It was the preservation of white dominance and the legal right to enslaving Africans. Y'all, that was literally baked into the cake of America's founding. It was part, it was literally part of why George Washington and all them motherfuckers, that's why they were so much beefing with England in the first place. Yes, taxation without representation and a tea party and all that shit, all that too, but you better believe when they saw England slowly but surely going towards a, a, a purview that said they were about to abolish slavery in England, <laughs> baby, Jefferson and all them said, fuck that shit. We need these black asses to build our nation from scratch for free, and we're not about to be over here saddled with this enlightenment abolition bullshit. Peace, we out. That was very much part of the Revolutionary War. And among other issues... Because, again, not, not to give England a cookie too fast. They were very slow. But they were also surely coming to an end of their relationship with the enslaved black person. There's a legal case for you. Because, you know, it's holding court. Somerset v. Stewart. The year of the decision? 1772. When was America founded? 1776. Are y'all putting this shit together? Are you putting it together? Somerset decides that the court will not allow a black man to be forcibly removed from England and sent back to Jamaica only to be put in shackles and put on the selling block. England said, uh, nah to that extradition. England said, we are slowly evolving to a, a, a position and state of mind that says that the, the bodies of Africans should not be for sale. England and other parts of Europe continued to participate in the transatlantic slave trade until 1807. Let me be very clear about that. But do know that the Somerset decision did start to set some shit off. And it was really what many historians frame, y'all, as the very start of the British abolition movement. It was the beginning of a white European lens that started, just started to see Africans and African descendants 
they started to see black people as human. Human enough not to be treated as chattel and not eligible to be bought nor sold. Now, all of that evolution on Britain's part and other parts of Europe, it's happening in the very backdrop of America's own fight for freedom from the British. This is happening alongside the Revolutionary War. So Washington and then were like, yeah, y'all, y'all are, are tripping like motherfuckers. We are actually trying to do everything we can to preserve the ability that we're going to have to have to build up the infancy of our nation. And we know we've got to do it. We can't do it any other way, but on the backs of a necessary free labor bestowed at the hands of enslaved Africans. That's the only way. We've got to win this war and we've got to push to the death of our committed version of a wealthy, white, free nation. And I don't have to tell you how that one ended. That's what happened. So now let's go forward. Let's go to 2023, where we are now. So white America, y'all, they're doing the math. They are rightfully analyzing the same data that we are looking at. And they know that 2044, 2044 is right down the road. Well, what happens in 2044, Ebony? Well, that is the first projected year where white people will no longer comprise the majority of America's population. America, built as the white bastion of Protestant everything, is about to be a minority white nation. Y'all, it's unimaginable for many of them. That means that for the very first time, per the numbers, their power and footing on this nation that they founded entirely for the reason of white protection and, and safety is going to be in jeopardy. And they know it. This very idea of America as a predominantly white-centered nation will be in peril. And in an America where whiteness doesn't default the standards of beauty, of brilliance, of work ethic, of cultural norms, and frankly, everything else that matters in a nation, all of that, it will be up for grabs. And it'll be up for grabs for the very first time since 1776. It'll be up for grabs for the very first time since white colonizers performed a genocide on the indigenous people. And let me just be really plain, y'all. A population advantage is all around, it is the entire nucleus of retaining a nation's power. The, the population advantage of whiteness is so absolutely necessary to a white nation's existence, because how can you be a white nation if you're not the majority? And you better believe that those that founded this nation intended for this to be a white nation evermore. So when they founded the nation, they were good with the numbers. They were white. They were Protestant. They were Anglo-Saxon. And let's be clear, that is indeed the original highest ordained order of whiteness in America. And everything and everybody that's not that, that's not white, Protestant, Anglo-Saxon, y'all are just derivatives. <laughs> please, please believe that. You are just white proximate or at best conditionally white. So these extreme white Americans were so threatened by a rising black population post-emancipation 
And then we had the nerve to like like what we talked about, right? Start these HBCUs, become educated, open businesses. Freedmen's Bureau was doing its thing for a minute. You know, all the things that we know happened. Black Wall Street in, in, in Tulsa. Black Wall Street in Wilmington, North Carolina. Black Wall Street in Durham, North Carolina. Y'all, there was not one Black Wall Street. There were many. And they were seeing this shit, right? They said, fuck that. They became too relaxed with the gatekeeping of whiteness. And so they begrudgingly had to loosen those gates, loosen the grip. How do they do that? Well, now they, they start letting these Italians be a little white. The Irish, we're going to let them be a little white. Even, and we really didn't want to do this, but we're even going to let the Jewish people be brought into the fold of American whiteness. Y'all, this was not a long time ago. I'm talking about as recently as the 1960s and 70s. This is when our parents were matriculating, most of us. That's grown, that's listening to this podcast. That is when we started seeing this significant number of Jews, of Italians, of Irish folks being considered white. This is why it was a huge fucking deal when John F. Kennedy was elected America's president. Y'all look it up. So the good news for white folks, and this is really truly where we're ending, I really want white Americans, and there are some, some white Americans listening to this show, shout out to y'all, just to know and, and spread the good word, because if you listen to Holden Court and you're white, you already know what time it is. But I want you to tell your fragile white peers that y'all are, y'all are really truly going to be fine. I promise you. You will be just as fine as every other minority status American has ever been in this nation. So said another way, I guess, maybe you, you might be fine, right? But you're right. You will no longer have the unearned and intrinsic advantage of a white-centered, white-preoccupied society to boost you, to protect your mediocrity. See, the day is coming, y'all, and it's coming extremely soon where white people will have to show up and perform just like the rest of us. We see it now, right? Post the affirmative action gutting of race conscious admissions. What, what do we have? We have a filing around, well, if we're doing that, Supreme Court, what about these legacy admissions at Harvard and these other elite schools? Because we know that they benefit white folk who had a, a gazillion year advantage to admissions and access to these institutions let's let's if we gonna level the playing field your honor let's motherfucking level it so it's coming the graded curve days of whiteness they're coming to an end and that is terrifying for some white people in this country but i submit to you it should come as a relief because now and only now Will you as a white American have a chance to finally exist fully in your own humanity? And see, then and only then will the asterisk from white existence in America truly be removed. All right, y'all, so there you have it. Uh, that's the who, that's the what, the when, the why, the how, the huh. And those are just some things I had to come and get off my chest in the wake of the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision. But again, I end with a good news word. Ye not fret, because black folks have always persisted. We have always emancipated ourselves. 
We have always ascended to the highest levels of American life on our own will, on our own accord, and on our own terms. And guess what, y'all? We'll do it again. All right, that's this week's episode of Holding Court. Uh, as always, I want to thank y'all. We'll be back in court next session. Uh, in the meantime, y'all stay prayed up, stay faithed up, keep your sunscreen on. It's hot as fuck out there. Also, I want y'all to stay in a posture of abundance. And as Dustin Ross would say, read your terms and your conditions. Holden Court is an Interval Presents original production from Uppity Productions in association with Dossie Media. Executive producer and host, Ebony K. Williams. Co-host and producer, Dustin Ross. From Interval Presents, executive producers, Alan Coy and Jake Kleinberg. Produced, of course, by Ashley J. Hobbs. Editing, sound design, and mix by Stephanie Morell. Original music by Epidemic Sound. Video editing by Kaysen Alexander and Courtney Deans. Consultant, Carla Wilmaris. Special thanks to operations lead, Sarah Yu. Business development lead, Sheffy Ellen Swag. And marketing lead, Samira Still. 